Hello, listeners, and welcome to the first of our August episodes where we're celebrating our favorite guests of this year. And Grant, just in case our loyal listeners feel like they'd rather skip August because they've heard these interviews before, I feel compelled to note that we have fresh trends each week of August and a few fresh insights on the topics that we're choosing, too. Absolutely. Do not skip, listeners. Don't skip August. I think it's the most important month of the year, in fact. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, we do have fresh insights. And I, I want to note also that I often re-listen to podcasts from the past, and I'm surprised what I've forgotten or just what sticks differently or what's good to hear again to reinforce a thought. Um, I think we all move so quickly through information these days that it's, it's, it's very kind of temporary. Sometimes I think it only goes into my short-term memory. So think of August as a way to, to, to put this in your long-term memory. And so this week, we're regrouping two powerhouse authors, Ashley C. Ford and Melissa Phoebos, both of whom have written profoundly about intimate truths. So, so what would you share about intimate truths for our listeners, Brooke, to carry with them as they tune into today's episode? Yeah, well, whether you listen to our show because you write or listen because you're a reader, I do have some food for thought about why intimate truths matter so much. And I've been just mulling this over so much lately because I'm actually thinking about finessing this into a broader talk of some sort. And, you know, broadly speaking, like on a cultural and social level, I feel that memoir is becoming more of a force to reckon with. And both of these guests, Ashley and Melissa, share some of their innermost thoughts and feelings on the page, of course, but they do so in a really profound way. Ashley's book, Somebody's Daughter, is about growing up with an incarcerated father, but she also shares boldly about abuse, about the rapes that her father was convicted of, and a lot about her own body. And then Melissa's latest book, Body Work, is the one about writing in memoir and the one we had her on the show for. But her memoirs have also been these intimate explorations of choice and ones that, uh, you know, she's made, but have also been made for her. And these are about things like working as a professional dominatrix when she was in her 20s and also about the transition from girlhood to womanhood and what that's like for modern girls and teens. And one of the reasons I love memoir so much is because it is a genre that opens a window to other people's experience in uniquely intimate ways. And not too many of us have the opportunity to deeply explore with someone what it's like to grow up with an incarcerated father or what it might be like to choose to become a professional dominatrix. And even if you have friends with this experience, it still might be the case that you wouldn't probe that much. I mean, I wouldn't, right? I might let my friend take the lead on what they wanted to share with me and ask a couple of follow-up questions, but never the level of what a memoir will give you. And so memoir, of course, gives you this access. It really invites you in in a wholly unique way. And in doing so, it destigmatizes experiences that we are told we shouldn't talk about, you know, experiences that are shameful, that might be problematic for any number of reasons. And in doing so, my point is that it changes the culture, right? Like when we can point to someone and say, that person went to prison and now she's a social justice advocate, thinking of Piper Kerman, or that person laid bare his complicity and abuse and wrote about the violence he experienced, Kiese Lehman, or that person wrote what it was like to be abandoned by her parents, E.J. Co., or what it was like to be raised by a mentally ill parent, Adrienne Brodeur. 
you know, I could go on and on and on with this because the range of experience up for examination in memoir is so vast, you know, and importantly, Grant, this kind of work and exploration that memoirists do explodes the notion that there's a limited way to be successful. So people writing about being survivors of abuse or about coming out as gay or growing up in dysfunctional families all show us that our experiences, whatever they are, are also okay. And we might still feel shame about some of those experiences, but we can look to memoirs as a touch point to remind us of other brave writers who've come before us who have also laid bear the truth of their experience. And as more and more and more writers come out of the shadows with these kinds of experiences, I feel like the more cultural reckonings we experience. So some of the big ones we've experienced as a culture in the past few years have been the reckoning around Me Too, the anti-Asian hate and violence that was precipitated by all of the Trump anti-immigration stuff, not to mention COVID, uh, and then the experiences of Black Americans in the wake of George Floyd. You know, all of these really became cultural movements that were intertwined with memoir writing because writers came out of the woodwork to share their experiences about all of these topics. And in that way, memoir is both an arbiter and a mirror of our culture. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Brooke. And I appreciate your take on this so much because it helps put a fine point on the value memoir and stories in general hold more broadly. And I think we all know that and understand, you know, that memoir has really come into its own and really, I mean, it really wasn't a genre before the, the last hundred years or so, but, but but really it's been the past few decades. It's kind of interesting to think about how how recent memoir has kind of come into our consciousness as a as a as a prominent genre. Sometimes those uh, underlying reasons and meanings for why a particular form matters so much can be subtle or elusive. And I think you're right that memoir as a mirror of our shifting understanding of ourselves as human beings, you know, really speaks to its staying power. And, you know, I, re I recently read an article about how women are much more comfortable sharing their abortion stories now than they were even just 10 years ago. And that's because the experience isn't a source of shame for them now. And I think that, that speaks to this power of memoir that you're talking about. And uh, I think this will be an example of how memoir and personal writing over the years opened us up personally and on a broader cultural level. I also th think it's this power of story that will really lead us to better places in a variety of ways. So these these stories and the people revealing their vulnerabilities, this is actually my reason for optimism. And as far as the two authors that we're going to hear from today, I'll say that these were two of my favorite interviews for the deep self-awareness um, that the authors brought to the show. I could have listened to Ashley C. Ford for hours, and I appreciated Melissa's advocacy for writers and her championing of memoir as a form. Yes, I so agree. These are indeed powerful writers with messages of inspiration for readers and writers alike. So we're going to share some of our favorite moments from those episodes. And if you love what you hear, go back and listen to the whole show. And here are Ashley C. Ford and Melissa Phoebos. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
I'm so thrilled to have Ashley C. Ford on the show today. Ashley is a New York Times bestselling author of the memoir, Somebody's Daughter, which was published by Flatiron Books in June of 2021. And Ford is the former host of the Chronicles of Now podcast, co-host of the HBO companion podcast, Lovecraft Country Radio. She lives in Indianapolis with her husband, poet and fiction writer, Kelly Stacy, and they have a little dog named Astro Renegade Ford Stacy. And Ashley, you've also guest edited for all kinds of brilliant publications like Elle, Slate, Teen Vogue, New York Magazine, New York Times, and on and on. And I just can't say how happy I am to welcome you. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. And I, I mentioned to you before we started how much your book touched me. And, uh, you know, you've spoken about how you wrote this book because you had to and not so much because you wanted to. And I find this to be true with memoirists often. You know, it's something that I'll hear um, from my students. So what advice do you have to other writers who might feel this way, who are confronting the had to's and maybe feel at least sometimes like they'd rather not? <laughs> you know, one of the things that always gave me, please excuse my dog. There's Astro. Right in the background. You hear Astro. He, as soon as I start, Astro, Go give me Astro. that. I'm like, please give me Lammy. <laughs> Um, uh, one of the things that really got me through the process of realizing that I was not going to be able to just set this book down and set this story down and not move forward with it. Um, the thought that gave me a lot of comfort was that I didn't have to publish it (laughs) just because I needed to write something or get it out or just because I I had a feeling or a thought didn't mean that that was something I was ready to share. And that was okay. That was perfectly okay. Um, I think what happens with an artist is that it is really hard to work on something, to work and work and work and continue to work and feel like at the end of all that work, you don't want to share or you're not ready or you're not in a good place to share. But it's always good to ask yourself the question, just because you've got to get it out doesn't mean that you've got to get it out into the world just yet. Ashley, so much of what's written about your book and what reviewers seem to focus on centers on your dad being in prison for most of your life. But of course, because he he wasn't there, the book is really about his absence. And in that way, it's it's sort of not about him or it's, it, or it's about him in, in such a peripheral way. So when you set out to write this story, how did you grapple with that fact? And do you have any feelings about the father story being such a focus of the attention on the book and when so many other things, you know, carry equal or more weight in the book? You know, I think the reason why it seems like, you know, the book isn't really about my dad and um, it's not as focused on him, I think, as a lot of people expect is because the book is about my dad being in prison for 30 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for 30 years, uh, a parent being incarcerated and being gone may not have an everyday impact in your life. They may not even have a weekly, monthly, or yearly impact in your life, but their absence is evident in your interactions with the parent who is still there, who's still parenting you, mm-hmm. your interactions with the siblings who also don't know who he is or uh, who he has been. 
it's the the markers of that absence come up whether it's top of mind for you or not and the feeling of not being protected of not being loved of not being wanted are those things that just come from not having a father in the house or having a father who's incarcerated not necessarily but do those circumstances contribute to that feeling of being unprotected and unsafe and uncertain and in in a certain way unloved? Absolutely. And so the story of me is inevitably wrapped up in the story of the absence of my father in my life. Like there is nothing going on in my life that I'm writing about in this book that is not touched by his absence, that is not marked by the silence around his absence. So yeah, I, I think it I think it makes sense to me. <laughs> and that ended up being ultimately good enough. Mm. I feel like uh these issues did have equal weight and I feel like they were represented um with equal weight. I know mm. that you're into superheroes. I am. <laughs> Yeah. And it seems, I mean, I'm imagining that that informed your book. And so I'm wanting to ask you about that. In one interview, you wrote that you didn't want your memoir to have any heroes or villains. And in another interview, I saw you shared that you actually believed when you were little that your words had superpowers and that you had the power to harm someone or change the course of history. So could you talk to us about this love of superheroes and how it might have informed the book? And if I mean, I'm assuming it did, but if not, how it informs your life? Absolutely. Um, have you guys seen the show Invincible? Gosh, I haven't. I don't think I have. It's okay if you haven't. It's a show on Amazon Prime. Um, I am I'm not necessarily suggesting it because I got to tell you, I actually only um, could get through the first episode because I'm a, I'm a big baby about certain kinds of like uh, gore and stuff like that. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a cartoon and uh, it's, Uh, a dad who is a superhero and his son is like wondering when his superpowers are going to kick in. Like they're supposed to kick in at a certain point. Eventually um, towards the end of the episode, the kid is at his job. He's had like this super rough day. He actually got like beat up Um, and he goes to throw the trash away and he throws, goes to throw the trash into the uh, dumpster and the trash flies off into space because his his superpowers just kicked in. (laughs) And to me, that is what it felt like to go through puberty. One of the things I was thinking about when I was watching the first episode of this show was I was like, oh man, like this is a weird way to think of being a superhero. I know that there have been superheroes who have parents who are superheroes. Like that's, that's a legacy thing. That's a, uh, a Marvel history thing. It's, it's everywhere. It's in DC. It's, it's everywhere. Um, but there, I, I, it made me think a lot about the fact that superheroes in general have this moment where they get the superpower. It just, it's there. They didn't ask for it in a lot of cases. They weren't trying to get it. It's its just, it is what happened. It's like one second they were like Logan, the next second they're Wolverine. Like it's just, it, it happens. Um, and the worst thing that could happen to a superhero at that point is that they are abandoned 
and confused with this new power. I feel like adolescence, which is a lot of what I'm writing about in my book, um, that time anyway, is a lot like getting superpowers and looking around at everybody around you, all of the adults around you, and basically being like, something's happening inside me. I can run faster. My body is changing. My my brain is changing. My feelings, oh my God, my feelings are so big all of a sudden. Why are they so big? It's just, it's that overwhelm of like the initial turn on of having superpowers. And the best thing that could happen for a superhero in that moment is to have another superhero show up and say, let me teach you how to fly. Let me teach you how to turn down the volume in your head now that you can hear everything. Let me teach you how to look and see what you're trying to see and not everything at the same time. Let me show you how to do something with all of this life that you have, that you've been given, this, this, this fruit, this, this juice of youth. Let me show you what to do with it. But instead, most adults just get annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> they get annoyed. They let, why are they so clumsy? Why is he so mad? Why does he, why is he so clumsy? Because he grew six inches over the summer. Why, why is she so mad? Because one day she woke up and the fact that she had breasts changed her interactions with everybody around her. Why is she so sad? I don't maybe talk to her about it. Maybe because nobody asks her why she's sad. Maybe that's why. Kids are basically, in my mind, when they are going through that big transition into like that hard start of, oh yeah, one day you're going to be an adult. All they need is somebody to hold their hand in that moment. And what they usually get is swatted away. And I believe that they get swatted away because adults have, adults believe, a lot of adults believe that the only reason they don't do childish things is because they hate the child inside themselves. And the only reasons they don't make the same mistakes they did when they were teenagers is because they hate the teenager inside themselves. And so we have a bunch of little superheroes with a bunch of adults who have denied their superpowers and won't hold their hands and show them how to do it. Probably because nobody ever held their hands and showed them how to do it. So yeah, I know that's a lot and I'm sorry I get mm. so rambly and you got me talking about superheroes. I loved it. But that's kind of how I see it. We have Melissa Phoebos with us today, and she is the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, Whip Smart, and the essay collection, Abandon Me, which was a Lambda Literary Award finalist, a Publishing Triangle Award finalist, an Indie Next Pick, and was widely named Best Book of 2017. 
Her second essay collection, Girlhood, was a national bestseller. But today we're talking about your new book, Melissa, which is super exciting and not even out yet, called Bodywork. Welcome. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you so much for having me. So I'd love to start by asking you what inspired you to write a book about memoir and personal narrative, because you've you've written a memoir and two books of essays. So why was this the next natural choice? Well, you know, I never actually sat down and thought, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about personal writing. I'm going to write a book about it. Um, It was more that, you know, I've been writing and publishing memoir and personal nonfiction for more than 15 years, going on 20 years. And I've been teaching it for just as long. Um, And so this sort of uh, conversation between my experience as someone, as as not just someone, but as a very specific person, as like a queer female person writing about subjects that are provocative and very personal, combined with working with students who are writing from really intimate experiences, traumatic experiences, um, stigmatized experiences, the sort of conversation between those observations of mine of both of those areas led to some really strong arguments that I felt like I was constantly making sort of among other writers on my own behalf and most of all to my students. And at a certain point, at at a couple of certain points, I decided to compile sort of those arguments and ideas and observations that I gleaned over those 15 or 17 years and put them into a single essay. And I did that with two of the essays or two of the chapters in this book. And when I published one of them, an editor came to me and said, hey, would you write a book? And I was like, absolutely. I have plenty more where that came from. (laughs) Um, And so I wrote the second half of the book. and, And that's really kind of the genesis. Well, Melissa, um, I really loved the parts of your book that were about confession. You know, sometimes we, we, confession is a running theme of this show. I was just thinking instead of right-minded, we could have called it confession-minded. Um, <laughs> That's my kind of podcast. <laughs> yeah. And so we talk a lot about the art of confession, so to speak, but also the judgment level that writers who write confessionally. Mm-hmm. And you have an essay in your new book called The Return, The Art of Confession. And I thought it was particularly interesting that you honed in on secrecy, you know, the secrecy that you longed as a kid to confess your secrets. And then later in the essay, you write that secretive people are often diarists. And as one who's kept a diary since I was seven years old, this is worth pondering. (laughs) Can you say more about this connection between having special secrets and confession as you've experienced it or witnessed it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I've encountered one of one of those really common predictable experiences of publishing personal writing is that people misjudge you. And I'll try to speak in the first person. I'm trying to be aware when I slip into the second person and give myself a little emotional distance. Um, (laughs) When when I've published really personal work, um, I find that students, readers, anyone who hasn't also done so generally assumes that I am someone who's really comfortable being seen and that I'm, I'm like really brave and that I'm kind of an oversharer. Maybe I'm like into TMI (laughs) and actually my, both my assessment of myself and of like all of the memoirists I know, or almost all of them, or even the people with a tendency to want to write as, as, 
as you did, our personal thoughts and feelings and secrets in our diaries or wherever is that we are intensely private people. We are terrified of being perceived by others and we tend to be secret keepers, right? We're very protective, you know? And so, you know, it's, it's, I think it's an early foreshadowing of someone's character that they might be interested in memoir or that memoir might be a rewarding experience for them. If there's someone who kept a diary early, if there's someone who considers themselves secretive and there's a lot of like, you know, in, in sort of every field um, from like sociology to spiritual writing to psychology that, that talks about secrecy and sort of the dynamics of it. And, you know, in my experience, when I don't, talk about something, it's usually because I'm afraid of what other people are going to think or that I've been sent a very particular message about it being unacceptable or impolite or unspeakable or offensive, right? And so that's like the starting point. It has plenty of shame already sometimes, you know? And my experience of keeping secrets is that that shame or that initial sort of narrative around it tends to accumulate and solidify, right? And then the sort of like follow-up response to that is that I start to develop and nurture this like very powerful desire to air that thing because I want to be freed from all of that sort of coagulated shame and fear around it, right? And memoir writing is a way like diary writing, articulating and speaking our secrets without being seen, or there's at least a delay, right? You get to write it and then like two years pass in which you're only dealing with one editor and then everyone else reads it, but you don't have to be there when they see you. So it's kind of, (laughs) it's the perfect solution in many ways for, for secret keepers. That's so funny. And so true. I appreciate you talking about that cycle also, you know, it's like the, the, the desire to get it out on the page is almost like compulsive for some memoirists, Mm -hmm. but then it really is setting it free. Mm-hmm. Um, I just have seen that over and over with my own students. And, you know, a few years ago, I interviewed Mary Carr and congratulations on the blurb from Mary. She is so wonderful. Oh, thank you. She's been such a good friend and supporter to me. I love that. And, you know, one of the questions I asked her, I want to turn to you also, um, which was I asked her if she thought memoir needed to be defended. And so I'm curious if you think it does. No, I don't think it does. I mean, I I find myself defending it because I'm annoyed by by the (laughs) misconceptions. And obviously, I've spent some time sort of articulating my views on memoir. Um, But in the larger sense, like more broadly construed, I don't think memoir needs my defense because people respond to it, right? Like the, the rooms in which memoir is being sort of like denigrated and dismissed are actually pretty small rooms, mostly of writers themselves, you know, and, um, and maybe academics, you know, uh, maybe some critics, certainly critics. Um, but for the most part, the power of memoir is abundantly evident. Like they don't need my little self-righteous voice piping in to protect memoirs, you know, like people are buying them, people are reading them, people are writing them because the value and like effect of them on people and their lives and their relationships and their own experience is it's irrefutable. So, so I actually don't think it needs me to defend it, though I realize the irony of me saying that as we're here talking about my sort of manifesto about personal writing. I liked how you also flipped uh, uh, some conventional wisdom um, in your book about 
how people need to have sufficient distance from an experience in order to write a personal narrative. And I often have said that as well. Mm -hmm. You reframe that to saying you need a change of heart, which I thought was really interesting. And I was wondering if you, if you could speak a little bit more to that. Mm, absolutely. Um, this is one of those things that I have spent so much time talking about because the the contradictory argument is made so frequently and so taken for granted, right? And I think that's because it does make intuitive sense, right? If you're writing something, if you're writing in a genre like memoir, where the sort of hallmark quality of that genre is insight and reflection, right? And and we get insight and reflection looking back at something. And, and we generally assume that like, the farther away you are from an experience, the more perspective you have on it. And that is true in a baseline kind of way. Um, but when you're writing a memoir, it's not only sort of like breadth of perspective that you're looking for, right? And so for me, um, one thing to consider is like, do you have an amazing memory? I do not have an amazing memory. And so as a memoirist, I am constantly in a race with time. And for me to have the immediacy that draws readers into my work to have like those very specific true details, it's way better for me to be writing as close as possible to an event. I also take lots of notes all the time whenever anything important or even not important is happening in my life so that I have those archives. But I do think, you know, we are not only drawing upon the wisdom of the intervening years between the action of our story and the writing of the book. We are harvesting wisdom and images and um, material from everything right? From the whole of our lives, from other things we're reading, um, from the conversations we have that we're, while we're writing a book. And so um, I have a much more sort of capacious idea of um, where we draw wisdom from. And so, you know, there are just, it's just going to be different. Whatever point in time that you're writing your story from, it's going to be different. And I'll use one example. Um, just to finish this long answer, my second book is about a really addictive, uh, toxic, um, enthralling relationship. And I wrote the book while I was in the relationship. I wrote a lot of it while I was in it. Then I sort of stopped writing the book, ended the relationship, and then finished the book and rewrote it immediately afterwards. And there is a specificity and an immediacy to that book that I think is is what it is. It is the it is the best part of it. Um, and it's really just fundamental to what kind of art it is, right? And so the wisdom is in the lyricism and the images and it's 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 drawing from different places. And the the insight comes from looking from the point of that relationship back into childhood, right? So it's a different temporal frame. And I think that that gets overlooked when people are talking about how far away from an experience you need to be. Like we all have wisdom at every stage in our lives. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Well, Brooke, this is a, a kind of weird book trend for me uh, because it was both scary and exhilarating to find myself actually involved in this week's book trend. And I haven't talked about this much anywhere because it's been a side project of mine for, I don't know, two or three years. And I wasn't sure if it would ever really be a reality. Uh, but we just announced that we're shooting the pilot for a reality TV show about writing and publishing called America's Next Great Authors. Author, sorry, <laughs> America's Next Great Author. And my fellow executive producers include the best-selling author Kwame Alexander, who is also going to host the show. And then the book doctors are Alex Dutt and David Henry Sterry, who came up with the idea. And then Sydney White, a PBS producer, who has also joined us. And the shorthand for the show is that we're going to do a nationwide tryouts in, you know, these kind of iconic American cities to show off amateur writers as they get one minute to pitch their book ideas to a panel of publishing experts. And then we're going to choose from those six finalists, you know, we'll, we'll select six finalists from different places and backgrounds, and, and then they'll enter what we're calling the writer's retreat. And uh, they'll write for a month. They'll write their novels and, and, and do a bunch of live wire writing challenges, NaNoWriMo style as well. And then the climactic finale will reveal, you know, who made it to the finish line to become America's next great author. Yeah, and I've been tracking this with you very loosely. So congratulations, <laughs> you finally made Thank it. You. I'm curious to know when we'll see it aired. So maybe you can share that. But I also appreciate that the mission isn't just to make the show about something that brings out the vileness in people, which is obviously what so many other reality shows try to do. And so you're really reinterpreting reality TV a bit. And I did read that uh, America's Next Great Author is dedicated to including writers who aren't normally given a seat at the table and mainstream publishing, which I, of course, love. And contestants don't have to be graduates of elite MFA programs. And the series will feature writers from communities and cultures all across America who bring their unique voices uh, to the world of literature. And so, of course, all those things feel very of the moment. Thank you for pointing that out. It's going to have the frame of a reality TV show, but it's going to be uh, community-oriented and educational and hopefully create you know much larger conversation and participation in writing and publishing. And and ideally, you know, I mean, it's not going to air anytime soon because we don't have a network right now, but ideally it will air during uh, November when it does air. I, I say that because I'd love for the whole nation to watch a show and take part in NaNoWriMo and learn all about writing from, you know, all the wonderful authors who will be judges and appear on the show in different capacities. And just want to point out one, for instance, uh, Jason Reynolds, the current national ambassador for young people's literature. He's going to be a judge on the pilot. It's also, I want to uh, stress, because this has been misunderstood, that we're only shooting the pilot this fall. And then we need to find a network to actually distribute the show. And we need, we need a lot more funding. So if anybody has funding, please contact me. <laughs> and uh, this is still, you know, so this is still in the beginning stage. And it's, it's, it's a labor of love. But we do have some interested parties as well. So I think it will become a reality. Well, and I was surprised and pleased to see what a topic the show became on social media. Um, well, pleased for the most part. I know it's, we have a little story to tell there, but then you got some really good press from Publishers Weekly and the London Times and other places. Uh, but the, the downside was probably inevitable, right? That you received a little bit of hate from Twitter. I found that disturbing because some people clearly got the facts of the show wrong and then others made assumptions that it would be like the Housewives of Beverly Hills or something stupid like that. So they willfully made those wrong assumptions as Twitter is wont to do. 
Yeah, that was the scary and unfortunate part,、uh, I have to say. And uh, I'm, uh, I don't know, I'm not emotionally equipped to handle that kind of stuff, I don't think.、Uh, but I did think about it a lot. And I thought about how it was a lesson for all of us as writers、um, because we put our work out there. We make ourselves vulnerable to things like this, you know, just by the fact that we write and publish. And, you know, one author, Unfortunately, you know, one author with a huge following, he unfortunately, you know, misunderstood、uh, the kind of logistics of the show. And he tweeted that we are paying the winner, the winner of everything, of the whole season of the reality show, just $2,500, which is a pretty measly sum. And、uh, that is actually the prize、uh, for doing a one minute pitch in our pilot. So,、um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and you get more than that as well. You get addition, you know, you get publishing possibilities and the chance to be on the show itself. So we want to treat everybody fairly and pay authors, you know, adequately、um, or beyond adequately. Tell you the truth.、Uh, but, you know, it was also an,、uh, an, an instance where it was easy to, to focus on the negative instead of the positive, and overwhelmingly people reacted positively. Probably 90% of the reactions were positive. And I, I, I love this one by the author,、uh, Faith Adele, who wrote, I will watch the hell out of this and assign it in class. It's like my, all, all my favorite things in one. And, and I think that she was coming. Well, I'm glad she saw the educational possibilities, but you know, what people were saying is that so many writers were saying, finally, writers get their time. They get their time on TV. And that's, you know, that's part of it. I love that. Absolutely. We are overdue for all of that. And,、uh, and there were some funny things too. Like on Lit Hub, someone said, jokes aside, if this show makes it to air, I will obviously be watching. In the meantime, I will be workshopping elimination catchphrases. <laughs> you have reached the denouement of your journey. Please pack your debilitating insecurity and go. Au revoir. That's goodbye in French. You know, the language Prost spoke. <laughs> yeah, I loved、uh, we're, we're actually creating a webpage of some of the fun, snarky things. Things that people said because people snark.、Uh, I mean, it wasn't really snark because it was so fun to read.、Um, I like this tweet from Chris Gonzalez. He said, I wonder about these live wire challenges in America's next great author. Will writers have to type out a chapter on a cracked iPhone screen? Transcribe their own handwriting from a notebook that's been blasted with rain, revise <laughs> after drinking an entire bottle of bourbon. I actually love all those and I kind of want to put them on the show, so who knows? But,、uh, but stay tuned for America's Next Great Author and stay tuned for more Right Minded. 